Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to the latest episode of Great Minds on Learning. This season is brought to you by Learning Pool, the company that helps you deliver exceptional performance with pioneering online learning platforms, creative content and powerful analytics. In this series, Donald Clark, the internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. For the last episode of the season, we go back several centuries to discover one of learning's grand narratives as we explore what the thinkers of the Enlightenment have to tell us about learning. So the Enlightenment was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. People vary over where they date the beginning. Some say it was with Descartes and the Cogito Ergo Sum, 1637. Others, Newton's Principia Mathematica, 1687. I think that probably depends whether you're English or French. But there's more agreement on where it ended with the French Revolution, which had done so much to inspire, and the Napoleonic Wars. Ideas that its thinkers had in common were a belief in individual liberty, religious tolerance, opposition to absolute monarchy and the dogmas of the church, and an emphasis on the scientific method and the primacy of reason. It was the Age of Enlightenment was also called the Age of Reason. Donald, this is one of the grand narratives of Western culture with huge influence on politics, science, arts, law, economics, you name it, in fact. But you promised us a a grand narrative for learning. So what is the significance of the Enlightenment for learning? Well, yeah, let me start by saying that was an interesting summary you gave there, you know, because it doesn't have a beginning and an end, like most of these periods, (laughs) but it's essentially the 18th century. It's interesting. I'll give you an interesting starting point. This year, I was off my camper van at Culloden, a tour of Scotland, and Actually, I was writing the, some stuff about this, uh, some of these figures there in my camper van as a mobile learner, as it were. And C- Culloden was interesting because it was bang in the middle of that century in 1745, and it was the last land battle in Britain. But it sort of signified what was happening, really, if I take it as a little theme, because you had these sort of wild highlanders charging into the muskets and cannons of a, a mechanised army, you know. It was the old feudal world dying or being killed off by, uh, you know, the scientific application of technology and warfare. And then, of course, we have the uh, the French Revolution in 1789. So this wasn't just about ideas and reason. There were real political mm. ructions happening as well in Europe at the time. Uh, but it, it, you're certainly right to say that the, the precursors to this, you know, that you have Newton and Leibniz, Descartes, of course, uh, with the application of pure reason to philosophical problems, uh, that that brings us into this century, really, the 18th century, and then out the other end shoots the sort of liberal utilitarianism of Bentham and Mill, uh, who, uh, who, 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 in a, in a sense, of the English encapsulation of that. But Let's not remember that this didn't just take, well, it took place in Scotland, I, I should say rather proudly. We have David Hume, Adam Smith, so we're going to cover Adam Smith today. But you also put scientists like James Watt, 
Uh, James Hutton, who really founded deep time in the concept of biology. There would be no Darwin without James Hutton. Joseph Black and chemistry. And these people all knew each other, you know? Mm. <laughs> this was astounding. They all knew connected. each other. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and then, of course, in England, in England, you have Newton, Locke, Hobbes, Bentham are coming out the other end. So, they, you know, another tight group. And then this also happened in France, of course. And we're going to come to Rousseau, Edward mm. Voltaire... Montesquieu and so on. And then in America, I mean, I think it's often said that, you know, the, although the Enlightenment took place in Europe, American, America made it happen. Mm. <laughs> so you have, you have, uh, you have uh, Tom Paine, uh, Jefferson coming out, the American Revolution against the British and so on. What a time, what a time in mm. history. And then let's not forget, in, in, over in Germany, you have an entirely different tradition with Kant, Immanuel Kant, Fichte, Herbert, Hegel, Another long-lasting intellectual tradition that comes out of the Enlightenment from Germany and quite different in a way. But your your question was how did the Enlightenment affect education? And we're going to talk about you know a few major figures because they did write specifically about learning theory and education. But it was also a time of you know the uh, there was there there. Were, there were about 200 educational tracts alone written in the second half of the 18th century. So. Education was a big target here. Remember the age of reason. Education mm. was seen as the driver behind that. And of course, the driver behind that was print. We had had the print revolution, the reformation itself, universal schooling on the back of Calvin and Luther and so on. So everything was set for the general, you know, intellectual uh, uh, ferment that took place. I think another interesting thing, which I really love about this period is how it took place because it wasn't confined to academia by any any mm. uh, in any sense. You had in London's and uh, you know in seventeenth century co uh, coffee shops and then into eighteenth century you you had the, what's called the penny university, the penny a cup of coffee type yeah. thing. And one of them, Edward Lloyd's coffee shop, became Lloyd's of London. The other one became the Stock Exchange in London, and similarly the Stock Exchange in in New York, I think, was a mm. coffee shop. And then in Edinburgh, you had these societies, you know, that were there was no distinction between you. You know, you're, I there's a very famous intellectual there who was the son of a tobacconist with no academic qualifications, who was regarded as a great intellectual of the day. And you have people like Hume rubbing shoulders with uh, with Adam Smith, who we'll discuss, uh, with scientists. There wasn't that subject breakdown. And of course, David Hume never worked in a university. They turned him down. The greatest mm. ever English-speaking philosopher in Edinburgh University turned him down <laughs> for yeah. a professorship in favour of a, a relative non-entity. So some of these people were, you know, it wasn't confined yeah. to the, the, the constrictions of academia in a sense. No, in fact, it seemed to bypass the universities when it happened. So obviously there was stuff going on in the universities, but um, there's a whole new culture of intellectual communication was happening and debate yeah. springing up, as you say, around scientific academies, yeah, uh, Masonic right. lodges, literary salon, people like Madame yeah. de Stahl in France, coffee houses, you say, printed books, journals and pamphlets. Uh, of course, the thinkers who were part of the Enlightenment didn't know they were part of the Enlightenment. The term dates from the late... 19th century, but they did seem to be extraordinarily collect, uh, connected. I, I think as we were saying, the spat between Rousseau and um, Hume just seems like a Twitter pylon, really. Um, and it's astonishingly how connected they are across the continent, you know, across the kind of Northern Europe. Can you trace a few of these connections for us quickly before we get into the detail of, of going down to individual thinkers? They mostly seem to advance their ideas by disagreeing with each other, as we said. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, the people we're speaking about today, of course, Locke was the earliest because he 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 had died just as you know at the beginning of the 18th century. But he's sort of widely regarded as a progenitor for Enlightenment values. You know that that independence of thought, the abandonment of dogma and ideology. You know the the application of reason and science. And then learning will come to him in a moment. Rousseau, of course, I've chosen because he's been such an influential figure in education and still is. Mm -hmm. uh, his connection, of course, to the UK was primarily through David Hume, who sort of helped give him asylum <laughs> over here. David Hume went to, to work in the British Embassy in Paris, became a friend through one of the salons of, of Rousseau, and uh, very kindly got him into Britain, gave him accommodation in Chiswick in London, got him into one of these stately homes, and then Rousseau turned on him. And of course, <laughs> David Hume, who by all accounts was one of the, the sweetest and nicest personalities you could ever meet, was totally and utterly bamboozled by this. But of mm. course, he, he had been warned, whilst in Paris, people were saying, don't do this, he'll turn on you, and he did. So he, he was a prickly and paranoid character, and that turned out to be the end of their relationship. So, so Rousseau never met Adam Smith, who we're going to talk about, but Adam Smith certainly knew about Rousseau. Uh, in fact, Adam Smith, was, although he's known as an economist, was actually uh, also a philosopher, wrote, you know, theory of moral sentiments, which was very close to some of the, uh, some of the theories that uh, Rousseau had in, in the social contract and his view of moral philosophy as sentiment and so on. So there are all sorts of links with these people. And then Wollstonecraft, of course, was a, a little bit later. And she, although she never met Rousseau, turned on Rousseau. She really didn't like his attitude to women and certainly didn't believe in his theories of education. So, uh, you know, and she writes direct attacks on, uh, on Rousseau. And then the Edgeworths, as you, uh, you said as much yourself, John, you know, they... Uh, 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 they were in the, well, Richard was in the Lunar Society, which is based in Birmingham. So remember, the Enlightenment wasn't a London phenomenon here. You're talking about Birmingham, the Scottish mm. Enlightenment, who placed largely in Edinburgh, partly in Glasgow. Yeah. So London was by no means the centre of this. Yeah, there was a Birmingham Enlightenment as well. There wasn't an Essex Enlightenment, unfortunately. <laughs> so let's get up to John Locke. Um, yeah. John Locke, 1632 to 1704. Whatever I write, as soon as I discover it not to be true, my hand shall be forwardest to throw it into the fire. These are his words. He was born in a Somerset village outside Bristol to Puritan parents. That's quite important. Educated Westminster School, of course, uh, same place as Shane McGowan of the Pogues, at Oxford, <laughs> where he didn't like the curriculum, as they didn't teach the modern philosophers he liked, like Descartes. Uh, he was a physician, scientist, member of the Royal Society. Locke lived through a particularly tumultuous time in British history. I mean, we think we've had some disruptions, yeah. but the period that his life covers is just the, um, unbelievably tumultuous. The English Civil War, uh, the interregnum after they'd killed the king and had to try and work out how, you know, uh, leafing through Hobbes perhaps <laughs> to see actually how you had a state without a king. The restoration when the monarchy comes back and then when they decide they don't like that monarchy, they buy in some from the continent, the glorious revolution of 1688, which was kind of an aristocratic coup. Um, uh, may get some feedback on Twitter from calling it that. He held government offices, including Secretary of the Board of Trade, later held by Michael Heseltine, known as the father of liberalism, one of the first of the British empiricists, 
Donald, what did he tell us about learning? Right. Yeah. So he, you know, you, you covered that well there. I mean, what he was was a towering intellectual of the age, well known, active in politics, active in all sorts of areas of society. But to focus right down on the, the point of this podcast, I mean, he, he did write directly on education. So his book, book in 1692 called Some Thoughts Concerning Education is a really fascinating read. And it did become the sort of, you know, the, the practical manual for education in the 18th century. It was very, very popular and well-read. And as you've already mentioned, he was quite skeptical of the educational practices of the day, you know, trying to break away from that sort of church-ridden, uh, almost scholastic view of the thing. He wasn't that keen on teaching in Greek and Latin, for example, or the teaching of Greek and Latin. Uh, so his is a a quite sophisticated theory of education that we today would recognize as being, being, you know, imbued by the psychology of the learner, yeah. uh, you know, getting away from just the transmission of information. And he talks a lot about uh, topics that William James and Dewey talked about, habits, you know, Habit, developing yeah. learning habits. And I think what makes him quite special is this, him bringing to the surface the concept of motivation. So that the learner can't be coerced and whipped and punished into learning. You know, he was dead against that idea. Although he, he thought that strict parenting was a good thing, he was dead against the use uh, of corporal punishment and so on in schools. He, he didn't think they should be beaten. You had to get the learner into the right frame of mind. He thought that attention was an important feature here. But that—that's his big thing was habits. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, he thought he had an associate. A, a, a concept of memory, in other words, we learn by wedding new knowledge into existing knowledge by association. But he thought that ha habit itself was terribly important, not in a sort of primitive behaviorist fashion in a way, but mm. habit by a, almost spaced in repeat practice, curiosity, games, language learning, dancing, no practice makes perfect idea. Not, yeah. and, uh, but not in a primitive way. It was against rote learning, Wrote learning of facts. He thought it was very much about teaching principles uh, rather than rather than just the, the straightforward subject matter, as it were. And that practice reinforced that until it became automatic and instinctive. So it's through the use of the concrete rather than the abstract. It's not sort of learn by doing. It was a big thing in the Enlightenment. We'll come to that with the yeah. Edgeworths. But Locke did believe that uh, there was a psychological understanding of learning that was necessary for good teaching. And that was around curiosity, motivation, and retention. Quite modern. Hmm. I noticed the word dancing in there seemed to leap out of that list. So <laughs> yeah. learning by dancing. I think this is what we're going to start hearing about at, at learning technologies conferences in um, this cup. So if we could talk about his influence, I mean, of course, he's massively influenced still. He's one of the great philosophers. Um, but in the period after, um, he, he, he kind of went into a, a, a bit of a dip, I think, um, over in Europe, at least. Um, but his influence was huge, direct influence, huge on the founding fathers of the US. He was quoted verbatim in the De Declaration of Independence. And that's still a really important document um, for, for the US. And the French Revolution, of course, was heavily influenced by the American Revolution and, and the Declaration and so on. And uh, ideas about natural rights got in there. So, I mean, his own way he changed yeah. the world. But to what extent did he change the world of learning afterwards? I mean, you say a lot of that stuff you're talking about, we now recognise as, as being good. Did the people in yeah. the 19th century coming afterwards? 
Well, yes. Well, when he was around, I already mentioned this this famous book they had published that was very, very popular, and that had a practical effect on the way things, some things were taught, certainly. There was a very interesting thing happened there that people have forgotten about during the Enlightenment. It's all about reason, but there was also a great deal of importance attached to manual skills. I mean, Locke thought that you it would be a good thing to teach carpentry or woodwork in schools. Uh, I actually learned woodwork in schools as well, you know, and metalwork, and I'm glad I did. It's proved to be one of the few incredibly useful things I did learn at school. <laughs> uh, but there was certainly that stream that came in, and a way getting away from that sort of scholastic teaching of scripture, Latin, Greek, that tended to fade somewhat. He was, you know, really in favor of more cross-curricular models of education in many ways and i think there's some interesting touches here he recommends travel <laughs> i thought there was a really nice bit in the book he, he says that travel would be a great thing if you're very young so you can acquire a second language with ease or much later he didn't believe in travel between the ages of 16 and 20. he thought you weren't sophisticated enough to appreciate another culture so travel when you're young to get a language or older to appreciate other cultures so this is quite a wide-ranging view of the world uh, and of course, uh, as you move into uh, uh, the next century, you have that whole uh, grand tour throughout Europe, especially yeah. for people of his background, let's say. But his influence, I think, was mighty in the following sense, that that manual became a sort of manual for schooling. Hmm. And that uh, it, the, the, the schooling system, the way things were taught, were much more liberal, much more free. But you still have this tabla rasa idea, you know, that the mind is a blank slate and it had to be filled up. And he was, was a blank slate philosopher, wasn't he? He, he, he was indeed. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yes. Uh, as an empiricist, I mean, uh, an empiricist like him and David Hume thought that essentially everything came through sensation of the senses and that uh, the mind was this blank slate that was filled. So even your ideas were built from sensations and up into more abstract levels through reason and the uh, function of the imagination. So everything mm. came from sensory perception in the outside world. It's turned out not to be quite true, but uh, uh, as we discovered much later on in the next century with post-Darwin and so on. But nevertheless, I think, uh, I think his, his ideas in education were quite sophisticated and led to a bit of a sea change in the way we saw learning from the learner's point of view. What You had to understand habit, the psychology of the learner, to do well here. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there about um, he thought you should travel when you're young to learn a language. Did he know that what we now know, of course, which is it's much easier to acquire a second language the younger you are, and that that kind of skill tends to yes, be quite early? And that's exactly what prompted his observation there, you know, he was extremely smart, and uh, you know he had. Uh, uh, yeah, I think you know that's what that's exactly where the recommendation came from. You know, he had quite uh -huh. a sophisticated view of how people learn, when they learn, the stages of learning, uh, which uh, led to these nice little uh, sort of recommendations. You know, you don't often see. I mean, that recommendation's great, isn't it? I, you know, travel when you're young to learn a language, or after your twenties, so you can appreciate other cultures. The yeah. very opposite of the the gap year, we might say. Yeah, which he would, in the, would have disapproved of the gap year. Well, absolutely, was doing you no good travel. at all. Yeah. Oh well. No. Um, and, and yet, so he knew that about early language learning, but he'd never read Chomsky, of course. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so moving on to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, seventeen twelve yes. to seventeen seventy-eight, extraordinary character, false. <laughs> Fain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical, and wicked. 
and that was what one of his closest friends said about him, Diderot. He was a philosopher, writer, and composer as well, uh, a big kind of creative thing with Rousseau. Born in Geneva, so Swiss rather than French, and not exactly Swiss, because Geneva at that point was a Huguenot Republic run by a few wealthy families, ostensibly a democracy, but actually a kind of oligarchy. His own family was downwardly mobile. His mother, who'd been the one with the, um, uh, the more aristocratic background, died shortly after his birth. Um, his father abandoned him. He flirted with the idea of being a priest, uh, but he flirted with a lot of other women as well. Got involved in a strange menage a trois with a couple of Catholics, converted to Catholicism, converted back to... It's an amazing life. It's a racketty it is, life. Yeah. I mean, bohemian, we would have called it if he'd lived later. Of course, that's my yeah. 19th century idea. He was catapulted to fame by winning an essay competition. Can't imagine that happening nowadays. And very rapidly became a rock star of the intellectual life. I mean, it really was uh, extraordinary, his fame, um, mm. because he kept pissing people off and getting chucked out of, of cities and countries. And then the offers would flood him for him to come and live with other people, like, like Hume, as, as you mentioned. The, but this is because the ideas are absolutely incendiary, um, yeah. you know, in the way that they they people would catch fire with those ideas. And he, he's a big influence on the romantics, especially Wordsworth. Uh, but at the same time, if you were a, a kind of churchman, um, a religious leader, you, you would hate him and get him chased out of town. So it was chased out of one place after another by religious authorities, but always offers would pour in to put him up. He lived largely off patrons, reflexively biting the hand that fed, a sort of 18th century Julian Assange, had a not quite verifiable number of children out of wedlock, um, prime minister material there, with a woman whom he persuaded to give up each of the children to a foundling hospital rather than taking responsibility for him, for them. Learning figured largely in his thought, however, Donald. So tell us about his thought, because the more I go on about his life, the more everybody's just going to hate him. Yeah, it, I, mean, from, I mean, he was clearly a troubled man, Rousseau, if and you read anything about his biography. Friend, yeah. <laughs> troubled, prickly, you know, awkward, and a, a, an anti-establishment figure of his day, you know, way out there, an outlier in many ways. I mean, you're talking about a man whose books were being burnt on the street, who got attacked, physically attacked by people when they saw him and so on. This was how you used the word incendiary, and that was right. Mm. Now, turning to his views, so, you know, how seriously can you take somebody in terms of learning theory who literally abandoned five children at birth, not even naming them, not even noting the date of birth? He literally did that. You know, it's almost unimaginable in this day and age. Uh, so, so if he was so troubled, why is he so famous in the educational world? Well, what he did was write extensively about the topic of learning and most famously in a novel, curiously, uh, Emile, which had uh, as a subtitle on education. It was quite a serious, serious book, Emile. It wasn't, you know, a, it wasn't a written as a, a, as a bedtime reading uh, story, as it were. It was written with philosophical uh, and educational purposes, as it were. And still, arguably, uh, one of the most important, well, probably the most important novel ever written in education, certainly, but his influence has been really immense and long-lasting. So mm -hmm. just to, let's now focus in on some of the things that he uh, he is known for. And the first one is a rather odd one. That's this idea of the noble, sa noble savage, you know, the idea that a child is born into the world as a, not a Hobbesian evil, <laughs> a destructive force, but as something quite naturally good. You know, the noble mm. savage, this idea that his, his educational theories, in a sense, are 
an attempt really avoid this uh, corruption within the mind of what are essentially good human beings. Children are good. And what happens is society comes along and corrupts that goodness. So let's reset education in such a way that it plays to the intrinsic character of young children. This is the opposite of the Hobbesian idea, where you had to bash the evil out of kids, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was a, a bit, the Hobbesian strain was also quite strong in the Enlightenment figures in uh, in Germany as well. Now, right. in the, he, has, he has another book called Discourse in Inequality, which writes 1764. And that's, you know, you can't, the phrase noble savage, you hardly ever used this. It was that you often attributed to him, but actually it wasn't quite how he was describing it. He wanted to describe your natural state, you know, one of mm. simple natural feelings and emotions and desires, and then the stages through which you go as a child, grow up and learn. So he was sort of Piagian, and uh, uh, the Piaget of his day in this. And he oh, he actually acknowledges Locke and Emile. He said, listen, the tabula as the thing is right. Uh, uh, he, he mentions Locke by name, but he wants to come to a complete theory of education like Locke and describing this process from the boy to the man, as it were. Okay, mm. And let's just mention the fact that he wasn't that interested in the education of women, which is why Wollstonecraft attacked him so fiercely. He thought mm. that you know, very much that women's role was uh, the feminine role in the home and so on. So he tracks this inner growth in the child as it develops through the educational process. And it's over five books, five sections, as it were. You know, this first, it's quite, you know, the Garden of Eden type child at the beginning up to the age of around 12. He didn't believe in educating kids too young with formal knowledge. He thought that would spoil them. The very opposite of what one should be doing. It's almost the Scandinavian model who they don't teach anything until age seven. We we tend to you know get them going at age three or something. It goes it gets ever younger by the year, ever more ridiculous. Hmm. But it's from after age twelve that's when the education of the mind has to be considered. When reason kicks in. Remember, this is the age of reason. But he was very strong in avoiding dogma, religious beliefs, and anything that might upset that rational process of the development of the autonomous self. So from 15 to 20, this next big stage, we're sort of born again because we suddenly, we were like butterflies. We, we, turn, you know, we, we turn into these adults who can think for ourselves. And this, the, the, the age of teenage emotions starts to fade somewhat because we're, we're driven by those passions when we're teenagers. And then you have to, uh, we have to be introduced to society and, of course, uh, the communal life with other people. So this is an incredibly important phase in terms of thinking about morality, for example, how we behave. Yeah. And, of course, we have the social contract idea hanging behind all this. And then from 20 to 25, that's when you really start to make your way in the world. And so in the book, Emile meets Sophie, who, who he will marry, but the book is rather odd because, of course, this doesn't quite work out because it, even Rousseau didn't see it as, a, as an entirely perfect process or executable plan, as it were, because in the book, uh, the first version of Emile ends with Emile and a pregnant Sophie. <laughs> and then in another extension of the book that was written later, he abandons Sophie and encounters encounters all sorts of disasters as he starts to travel in the world and uh, and see that things are not quite as perfect as one might imagine, you know? This is not the best of all possible worlds. It's actually quite messy out there. So I think there was a sense of realism. I think he realised that he had, he had presented a sort of utopian model, but the real world isn't quite like that, you know? And yeah. Emile was 
Emile was a shocking book at the time. It was burnt, banned. It was actually banned in, banned in Geneva and Paris. It was burnt in the streets. Hmm. And, but not for its educational position, but because of its anti-religious views. Remember that we had, you rightly nicely summed this up at the beginning. We've just came out of a, a century of uh, religious strife, hmm. certainly in the UK. Uh, throughout the 30 years uh, war in Europe, wasn't it? And in the UK, the English Civil Exactly. War. This is a real, you know, this was life and death, these issues, whether you were Catholic or Protestant or whatever in the, in the, in the pantheon, you're Calvinist or not on the continent, especially in Geneva. And so these were dangerous ideas, you know, very dangerous ideas. We forget that now. Hume didn't get a professor or position at the University of Edinburgh because he basically didn't believe in God. You know, that that's the bottom line. So, uh, you know, it affected your life. Your life was in danger in many ways if you if you took these radical positions. What seemed like seems like perfectly normal things to us now, but of course these people paved the way for this liberal, open, you know, debate not doctrine world that we live in now. We forget that we owe this debt to them. This happened in Europe, you know, and people are culturally relative these days. But this is a good thing that happened in Europe. We managed to sort of quell dogma, ideology, and uh, in favour of being able to discuss, debate, or sort of pluralism in a way. Yeah. And I think Rousseau was one of those people. And it, it was very interesting the way he turned things on their heads. And it, as you say, you know, children, the way that Wordsworth put it was, you know, we come to this world trailing clouds of glory mm. and we're kind of gradually forgetting the glory that, that we're born into, shades of the prison house uh, crowd upon the growing boy, you know, and the, the um, Wordsworth's kind of count in the prelude of, of, of the growing up of, of, of a human has this kind of thing in it. You come from this place of glory, and it it kind of gets beaten out of you, civilized out of you, and corruption comes in, which which all comes directly from Rousseau. But that's a complete inversion of what I'm thinking. What everybody assumed up to that point, which is why he's so revolutionary and radical, and that stayed in our culture to this day. That, that yes. is in there somewhere, you know, in, in so much kind of um, so many thoughts about education and, and childhood and, and what we should think about childhood. They, also that state of nature thing you're talking about, that he had a different idea of a state of nature to Hobbes's state of nature. Hobbes's was yeah. nasty, brutish and short. So you need the state to kind of civilise us all. Rousseau, the state of nature was a, was a kind of paradise. And our attitudes about nature, even down to today and you know, saving the planet, climate change, that is influenced by Rousseau. So yeah. it seems that he is massively, you know, it almost seems you don't have to state the fact that he is massively influential. Late in life, he was run over by a great Dane, sustaining a head, which <laughs> <laughs> is an extraordinary story. He was running down, a, he was walking down a narrow lane, a carriage came towards him at great speed, and running along beside it was a great Dane. <laughs> So it's kind of like, oh, well, do I um, get run over by the carriage? They couldn't see him. It's dark. Or do I get run over by the dog? And he chose the dog, but um, th that knocked him over. And he sustained a head injury that probably led to his death two years later from a stroke. And he wasn't quite all, all there ever after that. Yeah, that's accident. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he wasn't quite all there before that. David Hume famously described him as... A, he is plainly mad after having long been maddish. <laughs> so he was like mad all his life, but he got yeah. worse. The, the, the dog story is interesting because he himself had, had, a, had a dog called Sultan, black yeah. dog. So he was he really loved that dog. And he was uh, when he came to England, he was 
he used to bring it along to meetings. You know, he was uh, he proudly posed with his big black dog Sultan. You was part of his, uh, and he would dress exotically and so on. If you see portraits of him at that time, uh, so he was quite an exhibitionist in that sense. He was quite a small man compared to the big, huge, rotund uh, David Hume. So there were quite a contrast by all accounts. But you're right. I mean, his effect, his effect in education is still alive today. You know, the whole, that there's a whole, you know, just massive schools of thought around this idea of open schooling, letting kids discover for themselves and learn for themselves. Uh, I, you know, I'm not in that camp, I should add. But I think what, what essentially has happened is we have this Hobbes versus Rousseau argument in that period, but it gets resolved really in the 19th century when, when we realize that we're, the brain is an evolved organ. It's not a blank slate or tabula rasa, but neither is it infected by the pure ills of uh, sort of violent emotion, as it were. It actually, in the height, uh, opens up this debate beautifully in a book called The Righteous Mind. We have a, a sort of evolved inheritance which has some good things. We're almost innately sympathetic and empathetic to other people. We can read their minds. We have good and bad emotions. In other words, it's our evolutionary heritage that gives us a mixture of these things. Uh, uh, but emotion and sentiment is still strong because we are really animals. That's what Darwin brings to the table here. But in those days, of course, there was still the strong belief that we were God-created creatures and we were either created as, uh, you know, with original sin, uh, you know, in other words, we had, that had to be knocked out of us, uh, or uh, uh, in the case of Rousseau, uh, as as being uh, fresh, uh, fresh noble savages. The way we work has changed, and the way we learn is changing too. But seventy percent of organisations don't feel that their learning systems can really cope with all this change. It seems there is a disconnect between what learners need right now and what most learning suites provide. In a new white paper, Ben Betts and I tell the story of how this disconnect happened and lay out a vision for what a modern learning system ought to be and do. It's called Sweet Dreams, and you can read it now. So Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790. As if by an unseen hand, we are moved along now to the case of Adam Smith. Born in Kirkcaldy in Fife, Scotland, he was one of a group of fearsomely bright Scottish people about this time, including Hume we've mentioned, and Robert Burns as well, the, the great poet. And the Scots had an enlightenment all of their own. He studied at the University of Glasgow and Balliol College, Oxford, finding the latter place stifling. He was primarily a philosopher, but is best known nowadays as an economist and a pioneer of political economy. Though what he Though what he was, in fact, was a teacher, as you tell us in your blog, Donald, yeah? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, people underestimate Adam Smith, really. Of all the Enlightenment figures, Adam Smith has probably had more causal effect in shaping our modern world than any other. As an economist, a political thinker and a philosopher. I mean, really, you know, lazy fear of capitalism, which is what we all live with now, the majority of the world, certainly, that is down to him in the wealth of nations. You know, he defined it. He set the the whole thing in motion by saying that this is the way the world is. It's not the best. It's the sort of best we can achieve given all the pressures we have in society. A and an interesting character as well. Again, going back to the Scottish context of the Enlightenment. I don't want to get too Scottish about this. By the way, it's Kirkcaldy without pronouncing the L, John. 
terribly <laughs> sorry, Donald. I know what it is. Some of these Scottish place names are a bit odd in, the, in terms of the, what it looks like on the page and what it sounds like. You're telling but me. That's also, it's also where Gordon Brown came from, interestingly. But yeah. the Scotland, at the same time, so Adam Smith knew these people. He was a really close friend with David Hume and their philosophies interacted with each other. He knew James Watt who essentially invented the steam engine and created the Industrial Revolution. James yeah. Hutton, who discovers deep time and essentially establishes the science of geology. James Black uh, discovers carbon dioxide. <laughs> Talk about topical in this day and age. Yeah. This is a group of extra, and many others, a group of extraordinary minds in these societies that are mixing together uh, in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Uh, he, he was you know, a good teacher by all accounts. But his attitude towards education was quite interesting. You're right, he went to Oxford. He absolutely hated Oxford, but he hated it for a very good reason. He thought that the teachers he encountered there were lazy. Uh, he was highly critical. He thought they were just taking large salaries and delivering what he called sham lectures. Uh, they were basically just extemporizing on the... On the uh, an existing bit, you know, a bit of Plutarch or a bit of ancient text or whatever. He said yeah. that it got stuck in a rut and was of no use to man or beast, uh, really. Uh, so he was very critical of that because he thought, you know, he had that sort of Calvinist spirit about it. I mean, you know, he, th he thought that people should be contributing to society, doing something for other people, even though, of course, this whole economic system is built by this idea, you know, that it's in the interest of every man to live as much as his ease type idea but of course uh, uh, the butcher and the baker are not baking bread and and cutting up meat because they are uh, altruistic they're doing it for self-interest but it's still in the benefit uh, it still benefits all of us if we get a system that deals with those urges so turning to education because that's really you know what we, what we want to talk about here he saw education, this is a, something that's not often realized from the Wealth of Nations and his book on Moral Sentiments. He saw education as oiling the wheels of capitalism or commerce. He didn't use the word capitalism. Uh, uh, but he, he thought that the wheels of commerce would be well oiled if all people had a good education. This comes right out of Luther and Calvin. Uh, you know, high levels of literacy in Scotland, universal schooling. He thought this was a good thing because educated, rational people would behave like that in the real world and economic growth would be the result. Now, his, his theories of education were quite interesting, you know, because they were also a mixture, almost a mixed economy idea. He actually didn't think you should be paying university professor salaries because at that time in Scotland, he himself got paid by the learners. The learners would chip in and pay depending on the worth of the teacher. So mm -hmm. it was a you know a capitalist education system in the universities in Scotland that time. When he went to Oxford, he saw the very opposite. They were all sitting around, uh, you know, get really being uh, being feather bedded by large large salaries and uh, regular meals and and lots of luxury. He thought that was the very opposite of what it should be. So there's this private public fuel mixture in education, which he believed in economically. He thought the state should play a role in providing a basic education for everybody. That's at mm. the public expense. But he also thought that there was a role for the private sector in this as well. And that, uh, if people were hungry for education, they should pay teachers directly for it. Uh, and it's a very interesting, quite modern view. You know, some would say quite a right wing view now for, from some point of view, but others would say that was quite normalized in many ways. It's actually what happens in universities. Now people pay a bit, but the public subsidize it as well. 
Hmm. But what we've glossed over there is his idea of, you know, what what is it that we're educating for? We're not just rational cogs in an economic uh, engine here. Uh, So his book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, swings into action here. So the moral sentiments we have are around self-interest, which comes through in his philosophy of economics, of course, but we also have sympathy. We're sympathetic to other people. Uh, you know, we have benevolence and altruism towards people. We seem to be born with that. It's almost a Rousseauian idea. And in fact, he was quite close to Rousseau in this. His, his book on moral sentiments was quite close to the sort of things expressed in Emile and the social contract. On top of that, we then develop our, our imagination to better ourselves by seeing ourselves as being in another place or a better place. In other words, what propels us forward in society is aspiration. Mm. And that what you have to do is keep people, asp- keep their aspirations going and keep them motivated. All the time, reason and self-control coming into play. So he's a bit like Kant here. He believes that we have all these moral sentiments that drive us forward, but we've got to temper them with reason. And reason is something you can learn. You can learn it in schools. And you can learn social values in schools. In fact, going to a school gives you social values as a social context, as are your parents and your friends and your social group. So this is a man who had the brain the size of a planet and who thought about a lot of things, but his system is so well worked out. You know, The Wealth Mm. of Nations is an astonishing book, as is the theory of moral sentiments. And people, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to caricature it, but he had thought in a lot of depth about the fundamental psychology behind what we now call capitalism and what drives mm. people forward. And, and thought that was, thought that education was the key, uh, the, you know, the key, the key, the key locomotive in this, uh, in all of this was an educated population. Mm. It's, it's sort of claimed by both sides politically, I think. It's interesting that he did believe there was a yeah. role for the state in intervening in things like education. He thought, for instance, that the poor, the state should fund the education of the poor. Uh, whereas, I mean, Locke, for instance, believed that uh, kids should just be put up the chimneys. He believed in child labour. Um, but yes. perhaps yeah. he has suffered in, in reputational terms of the fact that he, he is claimed very much by the, the hard right um free marketeers. I mean, the Adam Smith Society is kind of, you know, yeah. very far on the right. So there's obviously a lot more to him than that. Well, that's right. You get these curious reversals of Enlightenment figures. So Adam Smith is lauded by the right, hated by the left, even although he did believe in publicly supported education. In fact, his books are full of sympathy for workers and the poor, you know, and the importance of protecting those people from the excesses of capital or what you call bullion or the pursuit of profit. Uh, And and somebody who we'll come to in a moment, Mary Wollstonecraft, of course, is lauded, uh, but she absolutely did not believe in even in educating the poor. (laughs) She didn't think that poor women had any role to play in society at all. She just talked about middle class or upper class uh, women in her books, but is lauded by the left as a uber feminist. So, you know, we've got to be careful in caricaturing any of these people. You know, they were people of their age, but they were often, there was more depth, subtlety uh, in their thinking than most people think, uh, you know. We carry around caricatures of these people in many ways. So let's get on to Mary Wollstonecraft, 1759 yeah. to 1797, born in Spitalfields, London, which makes her an EastEnder. Had a wastrel, wife-beating father who did her out of her inheritance. 
and she had an extraordinary life, which and another extraordinary life here, which I can't do justice <laughs> to her. I mean, you, you just can't summarize it um, in 25 <laughs> words or less. But I would recommend an episode of the BBC podcast, You're Dead to Me, uh, with, which goes over her life. Quick highlights, two disastrous affairs, two suicide attempts, sadly, a ringside seat at the French Revolution during the terror. I mean, Wordsworth went over to the French Revolution at the beginning, uh, but not for very long. Um, got a woman pregnant, had a nervous breakdown, went home again and drifted towards uh, the, the right wing of politics, having been very much a radical. But she was in France uh, for, the, for the revolution throughout the, the, the terror. Um, she was against the Jacobins with the Girondins, who were, were, were moderate, um, and stayed to see all of them executed as well after the Jacobins had got rid of. So there's a bit of a dying of the light there. She returns to London in 1795 via Scandinavia. Finally, a happy marriage to William Godwin. Fairly happy marriage, I think. Along the way, she worked, along the way, she worked as a governess book reviewer, quite a savage book reviewer, actually. Translator, she wrote novels, treatises, a travel narrative, a history of the French Revolution, of course, a conduct book, and a children's book. But she's best known for her work, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was preceded by the less well-known now, A Vindication of the Rights of Men, Although that was a bestseller yeah. in its time, I mean, interestingly, it was it was published anonymously, became a huge bestseller. Um, she went straight to the top of the charts, and, and then they put her name on it for the second edition, and it stopped selling because it was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> she founded a school at one point during with all this as well. So, what lessons did she give us about learning, Donald? Yeah, that was a very thorough sketch. There are some things I didn't know that in that in that mix there. There's one only one thing that I think you missed in that that she was the mother of Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. Which I was going to uh, come. To, I was going to come to that. That was going to be my wrap. Oh, you're leaving it away. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, <laughs> so I spoiled that one for you. But sure. what an extraordinary woman! And you know, it's just you know her independence not only independence of being and traveling around on her own and going to these exotic places and witnessing the french revolution but her independence and originality of thought is yeah. what's most captivating about her and uh, and she did write a lot about education and unusually of course uh, at a time when women were not educated i mean you know you, it was yeah. impossible to get into a university and so on but I mean, I think if you focus down, if you read what she reads, it, it, it's a, you know, every page is fresh idea. You go, wow, that is astounding, considering it's the 18th century, you know? So before yeah. the two books you mentioned, the vindication books, there was another book called Thoughts and Education of Daughters. Uh, there's yeah. reflections on female conduct. And this was all a, a bit of a sort of self-help book, you might call it. I think that's really what it reads like, because it talks about fairy tales and breastfeeding and all sorts of things here, right? But even then, she's attacking the superficiality of the education of women at that time. You know, this idea that you're being educated to be the slave to a paternalistic or, or, or male society. And so she was against that notion of drifting into faddish, fashionable manners of, you know, that she didn't like this at all, at all. And that's in the early book. Hmm. She was also quite antagonistic towards fiction all of her life. You know, she was a 
even though uh, Mary Shelley was a daughter who wrote Frankenstein, she thought mm. that fiction was a rather dangerous thing, especially fairy tales and the more sort of fabulous side of fiction, which she thought almost diverted women away from the serious rational life they should be living in terms yeah. of their contribution to society, you know, an obsession with novels and so on. She just didn't like that that much, especially in the teaching of, of, of children. Mm. So her vision was very much still one of, the woman's role as a mother, it was quite important to her, and a teacher. So it's that motherly teacher concept emerges from her. Mm. It's not pure feminism as we, we imagine it or, or, or live and breathe it today in a sense. But this was a sort of precursor to a more detailed look at education in other books. So the first, the vindication of the rights of men, you're right in saying that was first in 1790s. So she comes along with this political work, okay? And where she does an astonishing thing. She starts criticizing gender-based language. It's so contemporary, it's, it mm. astonishes you when you read it. Uh, and in particular, gender-based analogies. She hated uh, Edmund Burke uh, mm. and thought that uh, the politicians and thinkers of the day always talked about man and mankind. But uh, she, you know, she was very careful by this time. She had witnessed what was happening and had happened in the Reign of Terror. Uh, Reign of Terror comes in, this is written in 1790. Reign of Terror really hits its peak in 1793, but she really was living and breathing and witnessing this. Hmm. So uh, there was a, a bit of a repulsion against the French Revolution at, at that time. So was Burke as well, to be fair, but she had a sort of moderate, as you, as you rightly said, moderate view of all this. Hmm. Then comes along, two years later, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, an entirely different book. And this is where our real educational views come through. So again, she goes back to this theme of avoiding the manners that middle-class women had to be taught in order to play a very clearly designed, fashionable uh, and feminine role in society. She was dead against this. Hmm. Uh, and she thought that education in this, uh, education overall, quite apart from women, women absolutely abhorred innovation. No, any new idea that came along was just crushed by the schoolmasters uh, in favour of rote learning and what she called parrot-like prattle. Great phrase, that, parrot-like mm. prattle. We've all witnessed that even today at school at one point, no doubt, or another in lectures or whatever. Uh, but she was very precise. The great thing about that book is how precise she is in the solutions to this problem. Okay? So... It, it, I mean, she's firmly against single-sex schools, for example. She thought it was ridiculous that you would separate the two sexes uh, uh, when they're young at the very time when they have to get to know what each other are like. The sexes absolutely should be in the same schools uh, mm. because both boys and girls learn about each other and the harmonious nature of society by being in that mixed society. Dead against single-sex schools. Long vacations, she thought, were ridiculous because people just forgot stuff. Another great contemporary issue, still debated today. Mm. She thought it was ridiculous that you just send people off in the in a you know that learning is a process; it's not an event, and to to disrupt it by a couple of months in the middle seemed ridiculous to her. It also, she thought that put too much pressure on mothers at home to start teaching their kids. So, yeah. quite sophisticated views are emerging here. She absolutely hated the pedantry of teaching Latin and Greek. And we're still teaching Latin in our schools today. And loads of middle-class parents I know still love Latin for some reason. And uh, here is somebody in the 18th yeah. century, 18th century going, don't be ridiculous. This makes no sense, you know? 
uh, what, what benefit for society does that possibly give us in a way? In a way? And the answer is none, okay? And uh, she had this view of education as really just filtering a few men, you know, in other words, we have this paternalistic system that is just aimed at getting a few bright people into the university system and then they rule the roost. Mm -hmm. So coming back to some of the practical things, another really amazing thought, I remember when I first read that, listen, going, God, that's an astonishing thing. On discipline, uh, she recommended that pupils judged other pupils you had a sort of peer judgment system so if somebody yeah. did something wrong the other kids in the class would absolutely determine what the what the rightful corrective action or punishment should be it's a very mm. sophisticated view of justice at, at that age and something i've never seen happen in schools to be honest but it was part mm. of enlightenment thinking at the time that you had to be very conscious of society your role in society and educating people to play a fruitful role as citizens mm. okay, so these you know, this comes through into Dewey and William James later on and so on. Uh, and then we can't mention Wollstonecraft without uh, without describing her hatred of Rousseau. <laughs> We've mentioned Rousseau. I mean, she said I admired him a bit, you know, she quite liked Emile as a book, but book five of Emile, which is all about educational women, she absolutely abhorred uh, because she felt that he had wiped women off the table, really, in terms of their educational development. And so, Really, she comes up with, a, you know, almost everything Rousseau said about the education of women, she counters and comes up with a counter-argument and a, an objection to it. And this was quite revolutionary at the time. You know, although Rousseau might be seen as revolutionary, in terms of feminism and women's rights, Wollstonecraft was an astonishing figure. There were other people at the same time writing about this. Other women were doing this as well. She was not mm. alone here in this context. Nevertheless, she provides a detailed analysis in print uh, attacking the enslavement of, uh, of women into becoming, uh, you know, uh, ridiculously aware of their own bodies, makeup, and so on. Mm. You know, in the, in the age of Instagram, we're still battling with that type of, uh, of argument in the late mm. in, in the twenty first century. But she had a weak spot. She had a blind spot, which was sheer snobbery. Right. She didn't think. That, she thought that poor people should basically be taught, you know, practical skills to become workers and in 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 schools, not much time spent on them. So uh, she wasn't sophisticated in that sense. She was very much, you know, a person for her class. Hmm. Uh, and, and, but a fascinating figure, nevertheless. Let's, you know, it would be ridiculous to expect someone who's so original to be original in everything. You know, everyone, everyone has their flaws. So what I don't like about the judgments of Enlightenment figures, you know, I did a degree in philosophy and and had an, an absolutely marvellous time in the David Hume Tower. It's called the David Hume Tower in the University of Edinburgh, oh. which only last year had the name ripped from it and is now called 43 George Square or something, you know, by some Philistines just because he wrote a footnote that they object to somewhere. The absolute idea that everyone in history had to be flawless or else mm. they're condemned is something that uh, I think is plainly ridiculous, <laughs> almost Rousseauan in its paranoia. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're living in the age when people look down upon the Enlightenment, and that saddens me because uh, I'm in the other camp. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do my wrap, out, wrap up on um, Mary Shelley now, even though you've kind of, um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of blown the... You, you've spoiled me here. <laughs> so the legacy. Imagine. 
a very a very important part of her legacy was the child she gave birth to uh, dying in childbirth as so many women did in those days she gave birth to the woman who became mary shelley the author of frankenstein giving us our most abiding metaphor for the dangers of technology but i think another thing that really interests me perhaps this is kind of outside our our you know remit here is how the enlightenment gives way to the Gothic. The Gothic is born with Mary Shelley, really, and, and around that period. And it's interesting that um, uh, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, had an affair with Fuseli, uh, uh, who I think is the painter who did this this picture, The Sleep of Reason Gives Birth to Nightmares. And mm. there, there is some, uh, I, I, I'm really not brainy enough to, to, to really work out what's going on here, but there's something about the kind of reason becoming the, um, becoming the god here as we get rid of the kind of stranglehold of, of religion over people and you know make the whole world more secular reason becomes the god and then after that somehow you get the birth of kind of monsters and um and then the gothic comes along in the romantic revolution and and and, and all the rest of it still yeah it's a really fascinating theme yeah yeah. I, just to pick up on that, you know, we have we have uh, Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein, which encapsulate this. So, you know, uh, the universe and uh, we as a species, what would have been called mankind then, was uh, you know created by a god. Suddenly, we have this first piece of science fiction. I think it's been described as in Frankenstein, where we create a, another human being. Yeah, and so. The responsibility for creation and design is suddenly in, the, in our own hands. This is why it's such a revolutionary text. Yeah. Uh, Frankenstein, you're right about the Gothic idea, you know, this notion that uh, reason has a, downs, a downside here. Yeah. It drifts into nihilism, Nietzsche and so on, but, uh, you know, it, it brings its own problem. There's also an idea from Rousseau there that a kind of, and it's almost there in Locke as well, is a kind of suspicion of anything man-made. Anything man-made is going to be yes. imperfect and may prove to be wrong. I mean, this probably does come into it with Locke. And so, I mean, there, there are so many connections from this. To, to return to Mary Wollstonecraft, she became a huge influence on feminism, uh, a, a beacon light. Um, she was alive today. She she would have a column in The, uh, the Guardian. It's pretty obvious. In many ways, a really inspiring figure. But um, what's been her legacy as regards learning specifically? Do you think it, it? You know, some you go back here and you discover this stuff, and it, it, it's amazing. Is that because she was more or less forgotten in what she said about learning? Well, there are several schools of thought in this. So the, the first one is quite negative in that you know she was a lone voice and she had no real influence because nothing happened. Uh, this is the 18th century. We go into the 19th century, and women's education is still suppressed. Uh, women don't really play a central role in universities or even capable of becoming getting a degree mm. until the well into the 20th century. Uh, yeah. So the, the, her, her immediate effect was almost non-existent. You know, it didn't have much political effect in terms of any tangible reforms. However, the second school of thought is she's been an amazing inspiration in more recent times. Mm. And... Uh, you, you can barely open a book on education, certainly, uh, in relation to women or a book on feminism in generally without seeing her quoted in detail. So she has been a massive inspiration for mm. people uh, throughout the 20th century, certainly in the 21st century, in terms of uh, correcting that wrong. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, 
she's so she's cited so frequently because it wasn't just these occasional quotes she wrote entire books about this topic full of original ideas that can be lifted today and applied in schools today almost. Some of them are so fresh you know, that they would they would be stunningly original in any piece of staff training in a secondary school. So, yeah. but I think her influence on feminism is probably greater than her influence on education. That would yeah. also be true, uh, which is a good thing. No, just a slight side on like on that. That I, th I think we should say that it it kind of goes into literature in a way. There there is a through line through. Mary Wollstonecraft, not only Mary Shelley, but kind of Jane Austen through to uh, yep. the Brontes, very important, Georgia. I mean, the Brontes, you know, a lot of Wollstonecraft kind yep. of themes in there. Then through to George yep. Eliot, um, Mary Gaskell, uh, and so on to, you know, Virginia Woolf in the beginning of the 20th century. So it, it she might not have had a massive influence on, in the kind of political and uh, academic field, but certainly huge in literature. Absolutely right, absolutely right. So moving on to the Edgeworths, and this is something I never heard of. Richard Lovell Edgeworth, 1744 to 1817, and Maria Edgeworth, 1768 to 1849, an Anglo-Irish family though both were born in England. Um, Richard studied at Trinity College Dublin and Corpus Christi Oxford and was a member of the Lunar Society, the uh, Birmingham uh, Enlightenment, whose other members included James Watt, Josiah Wedgwood and Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of the uh, famous naturalist. Richard fathered 22 children by four wives. And one of those children, <laughs> Maria, became his literary collaborator, um, the, the subject of this little bit here. Apart from writing books with her father, Maria herself was a prolific novelist and a considerable literary figure who I'm ashamed to admit I've never heard of. She outsold both Jane Austen and Walter Scott for a time. Um, it was a, a literary line, in fact. Of the two Edgeworths, Maria was said to possess the more able and nimble mind, but they, they collaborated together on books about learning particularly. So what was that educational work about, Donald? Yeah, so the... <laughs> Not many people know about the Edgeworths, but they played a big, big role in, the, in the, the latter half of the 18th century, going into the early 19th century, in terms of shaping how education then emerged in Victorian schooling. And they wrote this book called Practical Education. So I wonder about their influences first as well. So they yeah. certainly, he was a member of the Lunar Society in Birmingham, and there was a guy called Thomas Day there who was a big Rousseau fan, uh, wrote extensively on Rousseau. So... The Edgeworths, they knew a lot about Rousseau. They would have been well-versed in his theories. They also actually literally picked up some Lockean ideas on early learning, habits and learning. Remember that theme that yeah. they prized out of Locke? Learning by doing. Learning by doing is their big thing, but remember they didn't, they, they didn't come up with these theories out of nowhere. They, this comes from Locke and to a degree Rousseau. They, again, a sophisticated view of the learner as an autonomous, rational being. Remember, reason being the driving force behind the Enlightenment. And that, they had to, uh, that people had to be educated to become autonomous beings and to think for themselves. That was the idea. But not only to think for themselves, but to have skills. 
Uh, this is in the days also when vocational learning was quite a big thing. Locke wrote about this quite a lot, you know, being able to situate people to work in farms, to know a little bit of carpentry and so on. This really mattered in terms of uh, their educational theories. But I think what was really interesting about the Edgeworths is the way they went to that next level on the psychology of learning and paid attention to something that hadn't got much attention by then, and that is attention, the role in which attention plays in learning. In other words, they recognized that nobody learns anything, that attention is a necessary condition for learning. They were also quite cute on the topic of what they called overburdening the mind, which is quite contemporary in terms of what we would now call cognitive overload. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, they wrote quite, uh, quite intelligently about that being the problem, which is why they were very careful about not recommending rote learning, cramming, overburdening the brain at any one time whilst you're teaching. They wanted to put that to one side and almost teach principles or habits of learning in the child, almost metacognition techniques, you know, uh, so that knowledge is far less important for a child. Judgment is important so that they become the drivers of their own learning as opposed to being literally directly taught all the time. But they were really keen on hands-on, learn by doing practical skills, okay, what we would call vocational learning now. And that's because at this time where you get the emergence of industry, science, James Watt comes along, the steam engine, coal mining, so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're coming into, you know, the various stages of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Okay. And so they thought that agriculture was important. Uh, they thought that science was important, chemistry was important, as was uh, mechanics. All these things were taught in Victorian schools. STEM uh, subjects. Yeah, they, yeah they, that would be exactly it. Uh, and they, they did believe in teaching in situ, as did Locke. He believed that if you're going to teach this stuff, you should not be stuck in the classroom necessarily. If you're going to learn about animals, go to a farm, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. Mm. And they were very careful. They were almost like Papert, who we've dealt with in another podcast. They did believe in the importance of physical objects, construction, constructionism, yeah. <laughs> uh, toys, you know, materials that are given to children, physical objects, so that people would learn by from the concrete to the abstract, mm. doing meaningful tasks. They also had a very interesting little bash at phonics. You know, it was how are you going to teach people to read? There was a sort of uh, what you may call pseudo or proto-phonics theory in, in the Edgeworths as well. But the two big ones were going back to the William James Dewey idea, habit and reinforcement. This was mm -hmm. important. You had to, as a learner, get into the ha habit of practice, you know, the habit of being attentive. Okay, this is what really made, it gives you the acceleration of learning in young children, if you can get them to be attentive. Now, they had a very, a very interesting thing happened because uh, there was a very famous example at this time of a wild boy, one of these kids who had been abandoned as a baby and was brought up oh, yeah. by wolves in the wood. Yeah, That's right, exactly, yeah. And this one's called uh, Peter, is from Germany, actually. He was brought over into England hmm. and had no speech at all. So he'd been abandoned in 1724 or something. It was quite early. Uh, but... And they thought, well, oh, this is interesting. Remember this tabula rasa idea that, well, yeah. okay, it didn't matter. We can teach him to speak and to write and so on. And then to their astonishment, he never learned anything because he hadn't learned language. Mm. So you have this sort of shock, really, 
on uh, of the fact that the tabula rasa isn't really true <laughs> that people mm. come come to learning with either innate abilities or things that are already hardwired in the brain and if you don't get that developed early enough then these these kids remain difficult they cannot learn later in life you know the acquisition of language is a necessary condition for learning in that sense uh, that was a very interesting sort of uh, episode in their life because it, it sort of went against the grain in many ways. Mm. So they, they come they come along and their influence, of course, is in the idea of universal schooling, which they absolutely believed in. They saw education as a great force for good in society and laid the groundwork for a good, solid, practical, theoretical education in all schools for all people. They thought that was the grounding for a good and prosperous society, which was also what Adam Smith had told us, what Locke believed in as well, and what Mary Wollstonecraft believed was true for women as well as men. So you have in this enlightenment, this idea that education is a universal good, that everyone should have it, and that it's more than just a, an intrinsic good in itself, it's actually what drives progress forward. So remember, science and reason are important in the Enlightenment, but so is this concept of progress. You know, that you've got rid of superstition and dogma and ideology, and that we're now on a rational process going forward where things will only get better, as the famous, famous song goes. They did really believe this. And of course, modern continental philosophy has capped that and has ridiculed it. But we still have writers like Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, it's a great book. And he goes through all the topics, you know, we live longer, we're healthier, we're better educated. Everything has got better, we're wealthier, healthier. Uh, to deny that the Enlightenment has provided a good life for certainly a huge portion of the world's population emerging out of Europe, articulated in the American dream, but also in the rest of the developed world, is undoubtedly true, I think. It has its downsides, of course, but I think to ridicule it, diminish it, and erase it is a mistake. We should note that not everybody loves the Enlightenment. For some, e.g. Peter Thiel, um, um, some Straussians, it's when things started to go wrong because I think Peter Thiel says he thinks it was a massive fudge and they just decided to put aside questions that um, really he'd rather we were still fighting, I, I think. I don't quite understand Peter Thiel, to be honest. But as far as learning goes, are there also downsides to the legacy of these thinkers? Could it, are, are there any things that kind of got lodged in the culture of, of, of learning and thoughts about learning at that point that have taken a while to kind of get out again, do you think? Yes, several. So we, ha we haven't mentioned the, the German idealists as well. So you've got people like Kant, Fichte, Schelling, yeah. Herbert coming into Hegel. And, you know, they were very strong on, on uh, the role of the state, teaching people to be good state citizens within the state. That didn't go well mm. <laughs> in the 20th century. Uh, and some people think that the roots of fascism and communism, of course, are in the Enlightenment, that essentially right. Marxism comes out of the Enlightenment, you know, that application of pure reason, getting carried away with theories and pure mm. reason into the madness of dialectical materialism, where you're suddenly splitting one half of society off and killing them, <laughs> as happened with Stalin and happened with Pol Pot, and happened in the Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, 
so that Marxism is one strand that emerges here that you would say was uh, one of the problems of the Enlightenment. It tended to over-egg reason. Hmm. But then you have another strand that emerges here, which is, uh, you know, utilitarianism and the libertarian view of the world, which is certainly true in English culture. You have Bentham and Mill and a subsequent political system that emerged out of the Enlightenment from that. You also had, again, the over-egging of reason, I think, on the psychoanalysis emerges in the 19th century out of this in a way. And a bit like Marxism, people are now looking back and going, well, that was a bit over the top, wasn't it? It wasn't actually an exploration of our unconsciousness. It was actually a whole load of sort of armchair theorizing about something we have no access to, in fact. Mm. So we have the psychoanalytic tradition that comes out of the effervescence of reason as well. Mm. But some of the good things in education, which was your question, we have these strands, especially Rousseau, which, which survives to this day in the liberal view of education as not crushing the child, which is a good thing. Hmm. On the other hand, discovery learning, exploratory learning, all the experiments from Summerfield and in other countries have shown that this does, hasn't actually quite worked, as, as one would think. All the acolytes of Rousseau have never quite succeeded in implementing it in education as a whole. So lots of middle-class parents sort of instinctively talk about it and believe in it, but actually when it comes to school, they want their kids to have a lot of homework and pass exams. Mm. <laughs> so uh, there's a certain duplicity in the Rousseauian view of the world, in my view. But we have certainly... We had this big hiatus, but Enlightenment values have gone back through in the 20th century with a, a focus on the education of women and increasingly throughout the 20th century in the develop, underdeveloped world or developing world, the education of women and girls being so important for economic development as well, that it's a big mistake to, be, to have this paternalistic view of education. But that's a, an Enlightenment idea that comes from Wollstonecraft as well, you know? And because they focused on human nature, I think the great legacy from the Enlightenment for me is that notion that human, that, that, you know, treatise on human nature, we started to understand what it was to be a learner. What are the motivations that are necessary to learn? What's good teaching practice by paying attention to the psychology of learning? And uh, I think that's why I'm more, uh, you know, I'm a fan of Stephen Pinker's book on uh, 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 Enlightenment now than, than some of the, let's say, uh, structuralist, postmodernist uh, thinkers from France, for example, who completely dismiss it as a as an evil thing, really, that led to nothing but evil. I think mm. that's far from truth. There was this uh, supernova of knowledge, you know, that emerged from this. Some of those strands were dead ends, but many of them have come to fruition and have been of great benefit to us, politically, economically, and certainly in education, because the science psychology of education, which we've discussed in many of these podcasts, is an enlightenment vision that we can actually improve learning and education by paying attention to the psychology of learning and the science of learning. That's an enlightenment idea, the idea that we're making progress here. And I think we are. I think that's a good place to end it. Thanks a lot, Donald. It's been a really enjoyable Thank session. you, John. Pleasure as always. This season of Great Minds on Learning is brought to you by Learning Pool, the company that helps you deliver exceptional performance with pioneering online learning platforms, creative content and powerful analytics. For a wealth of valuable free white papers and resources on learning, visit learningpool.com forward slash downloads. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. 
Social Media by Jay Curtis. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. We really hope you've enjoyed this season and would love to hear any feedback you have about the show. You can email it to me, kate at learninghackpodcast.com. Season two is already in preparation and will launch early in 2022. Be sure not to miss it.